Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Awaza. Now, if you haven't already checked them out, head on over to the Awaza website using the links in the show notes and check out their full line of filtration products. Learn more about the Smart and Biomaster external filters and the BioPlus internal filters. Also, follow their social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram to see more of these great filters in action. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Monday, July 22nd, 2019. My guest today is Dave Schumacher. Dave is the owner of davesfish.com, and Dave has traveled the country speaking at fish clubs, sharing his knowledge of cichlids. And Dave has also served as a secretary of the American Cichlid Association. So Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I mean, Dave, you are somebody that was highly, highly recommended by uh, guest Greg Steves as somebody that I needed to reach out to. And, you know, Greg has been on a couple times now. And I was very excited when you actually said that you were willing to come on and, and talk to me. So uh, thank you, Greg. And thank you, Dave, for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Greg. Greg's a good guy. I've known him many years. All right on. So let's uh, let's understand who is who's Dave Schumacher? How did you get your start in this hobby? Well, uh, I, I would say as as early as when I was uh, well when I was a little kid I was real into reptiles uh, had lots of uh, lots of lizards and aquatic turtles in particular where most of my interest was and I did a lot of that and in, in high school my first well my very first job was McDonald's but I like to kind of gloss over that one <laughs> uh, my second job I guess <laughs> was uh, was at a, a fish store where the owner decided he wanted to branch out and do some reptiles, but he wasn't real big on handling them. So uh, they, I, I got the job there at 16 to, to just come in and basically take care of the snakes, make sure their cages were clean. And that's, uh, that seems mildly, that seems mildly problematic for him. Like not, wanting to, to, to not be able to handle them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I only worked like two hours before they closed when I got out of high school. So <laughs> oh, I, I'm man. not sure what he did before I got there. So then, all right, so you're, you're, you're the reptile guy, you're working at a fish store and then how did it develop from there? Uh, well, his, his main interest was Tanganyika and cichlids. Uh, he did a lot of importing at the time. This, this was a shop in Houston and uh, his, his shop is still there, but I don't think he does any importing anymore really. Uh, but uh, it, while, while I worked there, he, he did he did a lot of real interesting fish. Uh, black calvis was the first one that I noticed that really kind of caught my eye, and I decided I just I had to have some of those. So I uh, I, I set up a just a little twenty gallon tank, uh, just just to be my my calvis tank, and I thought I'd grow them up and get them spawning. And it was probably probably four years later, and after I'd bred a hundred other species in between, that I finally got a got to spawn out of those guys because they, they just grow so ridiculously slow. Oh, wow. So it was, it, it took you from the time you got them four years before they actually spawned. Yeah, I wow. think, I think I started working for them. I was a sophomore in high school and I know they didn't spawn for me until I was in college. <laughs> wow. And so that's kind of an interesting idea in terms of the first fish that you started with, um, was this Alto Lamprologus calvis and, and you said it was it the Congo. Yes, okay. yeah, the black calvis. <clears throat> so the so the black calvis, and your very your, your first aquarium was then a species only tank. Um, well, it, it started that way, and then I ended up putting probably way too much in there okay. for a twenty gallon. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but I, I branched out and moved 
the fish onto other tanks. Nice, but the fact that you started though with a kind of a species-only tank, which you know, if you if you're going to breed, or uh, there's a lot of you know the cichlid purists or purists in general in the hobby that that will only do a species-only tank as opposed to kind of the you know community tank or a Thunderdome tank, whatever it may be. Um, that 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 seems like you were pointed very much in the right direction from a very early on from very early on in your experience in the hobby of setting up this you know Calvis only tank and it's not like you had guppies and an Oscar and a gar in there you know yeah I mean working there I, I got to I got to know a lot of uh, people that are real uh, into the hobby uh, people that I, I keep in touch with to this day a uh, good friend of mine Rob Teague he was he was a regular customer when I worked there, and yeah, we still hang out to this day. But uh, he he would uh, when I was just you know sixteen seventeen years old, he'd ask me if I'd want to ride up to Dallas to go to a TCA auction, and yeah, he he tote me up there so I could go buy some fish and meet other people. And I I would I would definitely credit Rob as as really getting me into the hobby uh, and and making it affordable to me too. There were <laughs> there was one time in particular I remember where. He had brought some uh, some little shell dwellers into the shop, and he was uh, he he offered them up for if I remember right. He said he said they were going to be three dollars each, and uh, and the owner of the place uh, said I'll take them. And I said you know this is this is a fish that I've been reading about. I really want to get some of these. How much are they going to be? He says well we're going to sell them for we're going to sell them for twelve dollars each, but uh, I'll I'll let you have some for ten. And uh, Rob pulled me aside and gave me a card. He said, "Come over after work because you, you can have as many as you want." <laughs> oh wow, that's awesome! And and he just he made it he made it very affordable to a, a young kid, and really kind of got me hooked on it. Yeah, hats off to Rob, man. I hope uh, I hope Karma takes care of that guy because to be able to you know foster somebody that's new to the hobby that you know is is a high school student where we all know when we're in high school like we just don't have this this crazy amount of cash flow. But to, to help prop him up and, and guide him and, um, you know, facilitate giving fish to somebody either for free or for, you know, practically, you know, no nominal cost. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely a big help. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I worked for for two hours after school uh, making five dollars an hour or so. <laughs> It would have taken me quite a while to uh, to afford a school with those guys. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it would take. Yeah, basically one day, <laughs> one day you'd get one fish. That would. Uh, that Pretty might, much. Yeah, that yeah. might take a little while. <laughs> not, not even after taxes come out. <laughs> oh, geez, good times. So then you had said, uh, so between the actual breeding of those, uh, the black calvis, it was about f- so four years, and then you had bred you know, a hundred species or or whatever it was between then. So it sounds like multiple tank syndrome hits you pretty hard then in a, in that span. Yes. Uh, In fact, uh, while while I was in high school, my bedroom, my my parents had a two story home at the time. The, uh, the bedroom was on the second floor and it was above my dad's office. My dad worked out of the house as a sales rep and uh, you know, all all my, all my geckos and things kind of started to, find new homes and, and their tanks were all filling up with water. And of course I'm adding more tanks. And every time they went out of town, I'd manage to sneak in a few more. <laughs> yeah. Cause we're enough in there that they didn't notice. Yeah. that's what I'm, <laughs> So that's what I'm saying when it comes to, especially like the spouse, I feel like, well, granted at that point you might have a fish room, but there's a point though, where depending on what hobby you're in, if you hit a critical mass with just enough stuff in a given hobby, your spouse or your parents or whoever it is, like they're not going to be able to keep track of the additions. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but well, my, my dad put his foot down when he was on, on a call one day and a chunk of plaster fell off the, the, the ceiling and hit his desk. <laughs> oh, my. Was that just from the weight from yeah, up above? I had or? a little too much weight up there. Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, he came up and said, that one, that one, that one, they've all got to go. <laughs> wow. So so take a swag. How many tanks and how many gallons did you think you had above in your room above his office at that time? Oh, man. I mean, my, my biggest tank at the time was a 75-gallon, and I had tons of uh, 10s and 20s. I, 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 had, I built quite a few racks and went vertical, you know, three or four high. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a lot of weight. Yeah. It was pretty dumb on a second story. <laughs> that is awesome. So, so what did your what did all your friends in high school think then? You know, anybody that came over your house, like, did they know Dave is? Oh man, Dave's Dave's the fish kid. Got to watch out for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of my friends got into it and would come with me to things, and and they set up their own tanks. Nobody nobody went crazy and had more than like one or two tanks, but uh, but yeah, I had I had friends that would come with me to it. I mean, and that, that definitely that, that definitely has to be a wild experience for anybody coming into your room and just seeing wall-to-wall tanks and racks, you know, in this high schooler's bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. And I, I met my wife when we were in college, and uh, you know, so she, she knew what she got herself into, because uh, at that point, I, I probably had about 80 tanks in my house. <laughs> oh, wow. Good times. That is awesome. So, so I, I want to ask you something about the transition from being a reptile guy to a fish person. What what is it about the fish that kind of you know pulled you away from the reptile side of things? Uh, well, I think just in general, going to a fish store and seeing guppies and mollies and things all the time. It just I don't know. It, it didn't really interest me that much. Didn't grab my attention. But uh, but but when I saw. Uh, a lot of the cichlids, just just totally different shapes, totally different behaviors, interesting colors. Uh, I, I can remember seeing Cynodonus. Uh, I, I think I think it was just like a Cynodonus eupteris or something. It, it wasn't even a super rare one or anything, but just in a in a tank, a large catfish facing me with all these branched barbels. I'd just never seen anything like it. And it really really sucked me in. It was a lot more interesting than, than the regular guppy molly tetra stuff that I'd been used to. Mm, so, so you think that if, had you not seen any of the cichlids, you would probably have just stayed a, a lizard reptile enthusiast? Yeah, probably. Hmm. Probably. Interesting. Yeah. Cause, cause for me, I would think that, and, and I've had lizards before I've actually got a lizard now. Um, but you know, me being a, a an aquarist and having an, an entire fish room with, what am I pushing now? Like 40, 50 tanks. Um, I, I think the amount of activity now, not all fish that we can keep in the hobby are going to be super active, but, um, I think even the lowest level activity fish is going to give you more visual stimulation than your average reptile. <laughs> yeah. I guess in terms of, of activity for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess with, with the black calvis in particular, what, what really grabbed me was just that, that totally different shape and, and, pattern from anything else uh i i saw i saw a pair at their shop when, when i first started working there that was in that kind of side by side facing facing at angles from each other uh guarding a, a spawn and it was just it was really really cool to see mm. and uh it just kind of had those radical shapes to them that that i looked for in a lizard 
Yeah, they, they definitely do have an interesting shape. And, and kind of on that note, I haven't done one of these in a while in the episodes, and I asked you if it would be okay, but I'd kind of like to do a Species 101 on the Black Calvus, and it's been... It might have, God, it might be all the way back to when I had uh, Matt Shower on and we talked about Corydoras, but if you could just kind of break down um, this this particular fish, Alto Lamprologus calvus, um, the, 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 you know, variety species Congo, and just help us really understand, you know, which lake is it coming from, um, you know, maybe some ab- some about its, its habitat, so if somebody wanted to do a biotope setup, and then, you know, just some of the water parameters and just kind of the general overview of this fish. Sure. Uh, so they, they come from Lake Tanganyika. They're, they're only found in Tanganyika. And uh, the calvus in particular are found uh, in, in like the southern half of the lake. So there's, there's three main color variations. There's the black calvus, yellow calvus, and white calvus. And uh, because they're all typically, the, you know, they're, they're technically the same species, they all get lumped together. And the white calvus and the yellow calvus come from very small locations. And then the black calvus is very widespread throughout the rest of the range. So uh, one, one issue that they face is um, they don't really get protection from being considered endangered or anything because the, the black calvus is widespread, but the yellow calvus and the white calvus being so restricted, they get over harvested. And uh, there, there's no protection because as far as the governments are concerned, it's, it's just the calvus. So uh, that's that's one issue that they face in the wild, uh, and and I mentioned earlier how how long it, it took to grow them out. I would say that that typical size when you see them in fish stores where they're inch inch and a quarter, that's that's probably about you know eight or nine months of of growth to get them to that point from when they hatch. Wow! So it's uh, yeah it's it's a it's a long process. Uh, to get them to, to full size, it's going to take four or five years. And um, as a result, you never really see them commercially raised to that, to that size. So when you see adults, it's either something that somebody traded in or more often than not, it's a wild fish. And so uh, you, you've got these small areas with, with uh, a population of fish that has a high demand, so they, they get overcollected. So that's something uh, with, with my shop, I'll bring in wild black calvus periodically, but I never bring in wild uh, yellow or white calvus. I just don't want to contribute to that. Uh, there's there's plenty there's plenty of uh, juveniles available in the hobby. It's it's a pain in the butt, but you can grow them out. It's uh, we, we got to leave those wild ones out there and let them build their numbers back up. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely um, interesting that that you kind of you try to find that balance between your business, what you want to offer to customers, but also having that eye towards you know like no, those those fish should, should just be left in the wild to try to recover on their own. Yeah, and, and I find in in many cases people that that are looking for these fish, they just don't know that, and and when you present it to them in that way, uh, they've lost interest in them. Then, so mm-hmm. you know when when you tell someone, hey taking these out of the wild is potentially going to destroy them in the wild, then that's, that's a different scenario. Uh, a lot of people are down on wild caught fish period. And I don't really think there's a need for that. I mean, there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of sustainable fisheries for, for a lot of these fish. Uh, I'm just thinking with, with the, uh, with the white and yellow calvus, basically they, we just need to give them a break, let them build their numbers back up in the wild. Uh, but before we tried, you know, pulling any back in again, Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, 
it's it's one that we want to always go out and grab more of just because it's hard to get them as an adult size and a lot of people are looking for them big they want that you know instant gratification of the of an adult fish mm-hmm. uh, now as far as water parameters for for most most Malawi and Tanganyikan fish they adapt pretty readily to whatever you've got coming out of the tap uh, dechlorinate the water and and it's it's good enough so I think a lot of people spend a lot of money on on buffers and things that frankly just aren't really needed uh, if you have very very soft water very acidic water then of course you want to buff it up because in, in the wild they're coming from they're coming from pH as high as nine in, in some areas uh, and, and very very hard water but they also just kind of adapt to whatever you give them so as, as long as it's not soft and acidic water the, the, they should do fine with it what would be your definition of soft and acidic? Like at um, what, at what, P, at what honest, pH? I, I like, the, well, I, I think I think anything. It, most of these guys, if, if you're anywhere from about seven point five and up, they're they're going to be happy. The, the main thing is is the hardness. You, mm-hmm. you want to have hard water for them. Mm-hmm. They don't like having soft water, even if it's got a high pH. The, the hardness is the most important in gotcha. my experience. Gotcha. Uh, as far as putting a number on the hardness, to be honest, I really, I really don't know. Uh, where, where I'm, where I'm at in Texas, this is where uh, the, the limestone, the, the whole Texas Holy Rock comes from. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, you guys just water supply comes yeah, out of that. You guys just squeeze, <laughs> you squeeze limestone and you get water out of it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's I, your I, water supply. <laughs> we have people here that buy buffers and things, and I always tell them, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big Gatorade addict. I drink a lot of Gatorade. If, if I were to decide I want more sugar in my Gatorade, I could put it in there, but it's going to sink like a rock. There's, <laughs> there's too much in there already. It's kind of the same way when, when people are trying to buff our water here. Mm. You throw those buffers in, but they just sink. You're, you just threw more sand in your tank. It's not going to dissolve. It, the water's holding all it can hold. Yeah, I mean, pretty much you guys and, you know, as you start moving up through the Midwest, I mean, there's so much, there's just so much hard water, right, throughout that whole region um, that, it, yep. I mean, unless, unless they're getting some very specific rainwater runoff or some natural spring or, or I, maybe even the natural spring would probably still have hardness if it's coming from the ground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the water sources here are pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, so, so, there's, there's some spots in East Texas where they've got softer water. Oh, interesting. Well, I, I like that you're not a proponent of, of chasing the water and probably instead focus on things like, you know, creating a, a, um, you know, comfortable habitat for them with the the, the various biotope elements, maybe, and, and water cleanliness, and um, as opposed to just you know adding more, uh, be it liquid liquid uh, buffers or or um, powder based buffers, basically not chasing that water parameter. I, I think stability is the most important thing. I think uh, if if the if the water conditions aren't exactly as they are in the wild. They're fine with that. Uh, most most of the fish that we're keeping have never been in the wild to begin with, right. so uh, they, they don't they don't necessarily need those things. It's just where they happen to have been born. Uh, but less than ideal parameters are okay. They're not you know as, as long as they're stable. You don't want that yo-yo effect where the pH is going up and down and up and down. That'll bother them far more. Mm-hmm. And then as far as diet goes, what do you um, what do you suggest for a diet for these guys? Uh, if, if you're, if you're raising them tank raised, uh, just flakes and pellets, uh, mm-hmm. are, are great, uh, to, to condition them for, for spawning some, uh, some krill or mysis, 
little brine shrimp. Uh, I always kind of shy away from bloodworms, although this is one of the few species that probably has enough of an iron gut to handle it. Uh, most most African cichlids really don't do well with bloodworms. It, it's too um, it's it's a little too high protein for them. It's like swallowing a brick. They have a hard time digesting it. Oh, gotcha. That's interesting. And then, so maybe compare or at least give us some understanding of um, what kind of environment are they coming from in Lake Tanganyika and what is their main, you know, kind of dietary source in the wild? In in the wild, they're feeding almost entirely on uh, shrimp and and, uh, small crustaceans, little copepods and things. Uh, They they do feed on, on fish fry as well but definitely to a lesser extent. It's more of an opportunistic thing mm-hmm. as far as that goes. So they're not, they're not pursuit hunters. They're not super fast or anything. They just, uh, they kind of, they kind of turn totally vertical and, and dive down and grab a shrimp off the bottom. Lake, Lake Tanganyika has lots and lots of shrimp. Mm, okay. It's a, uh, it's something, something that we don't really see in the hobby much. I, I've seen them. I've seen them imported once or twice. And, uh, I've never gotten any myself, but from what I understand, they just murder each other. <laughs> Apparently, the shrimp are not very friendly. Interesting. Well, are they? Do they even have any of the colors? Uh, the coloration of like Neocaridina or Caridina, at least um, wild forms. And and I, so I would then assume that nobody's working with them to then line breed and have you know any of the exotic colors or designer colors. Right. From from what I understand, they're they're pretty plain. I've, I've never actually been there myself. I've, I've only seen photos, but. It's it's one of those it's one of those things where people want to have it just for the purest sense. You know, mm. these are these are shrimp from Tanganyika. Gotcha. Uh, in my Tanganyika tank, but it's not uh, it, it's not one that's going to really grab your attention and go, oh wow, that's a that's a beautiful shrimp. Gotcha. They're just, gotcha. They're they're pretty plain. And then, as far as their yeah, habitat, the are they are these guys are they shell are they uh, cave dwelling cichlids at all? So do you need to kind of have some rock formations? Um, what you know, what's what's kind of their their habitat look like? Yeah, they, they live in very, very rocky zones. Uh, so lots of large boulders. Uh, I really, when, when you see photos of the habitat, it, it gives an appreciation for the price of wild-caught fish. <laughs> Makes you wonder how on, how on earth they catch anything out of there. I have a hard enough time getting them out of a 75-gallon tank that's got a few rocks in it. But uh, trying to pull them out of a lake that's got boulders bigger than me, I, I have no idea how they catch them. But but that's, that's where the... They, they like tall vertical slits so uh, when you spawn them a regular cave is not really ideal uh, some, you know tall vertical slits uh, there are a lot of companies like uh, South Central Cichlids for example I know they make uh, they make Calvis Caves specifically for Alta Lamps uh, so they're it's, it's almost like uh, like like slate vertically um that they can get into and, and lay their eggs in there. Oh, that's interesting. So they, they definitely, definitely like that, that tall, narrow space. They don't, they don't necessarily need a wide opening. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about stocking. So let's say somebody wanted to, to get into these guys. Uh, what would be your recommended um, size of, you know, male-female ratio, total, total group size? And then what would be kind of that best um, uh, tank size for that group? Well, they're, they're really not very aggressive at all. So uh, you don't have to worry too much about aggression. As they get larger and they start spawning, the, the males will spar a bit, but uh, generally not to the point that they're killing each other. So 
I, I, I notice with a lot of these uh, altar lamps with calvis and compressor steps, people always want to keep them in pairs. And you really don't have to. If, if you have a male and five females, he'll breed all five. Uh, or if, if the tank's large enough, you can have multiple males in there too, and that's okay too. The, the big thing is getting the fry out. Because trying to, trying to raise them, you know, I mentioned getting them to that one-inch mark takes about nine months. Trying to do that in a tank with all those other fish in there, they're, they're all going to get eaten. So <laughs> you definitely have to get in there and pull out the, the babies and raise them separately. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, again, where those caves come in handy, where they've, uh, they've got a back. And, and you start to recognize the patterns. You can, tell, you can tell when they've got eggs, and you can start to tell when they hatch. Uh, it's, it's always best if you can get them just barely before they're at that free swimming point. Because uh, then they're, they're still inside the cave, so you can just pick up the cave and transfer it to another aquarium without uh, without having to try and net them out nice and so let's talk about the uh, the the eggs then or at least the the, the breeding process are these guys uh, paternal or maternal mouth breeders no they're they're a uh, substrate spawner they'll, they'll breed in the caves uh, just kind of lay them across the back of the cave and the the male and the female will will stand guard outside of the cave. And they'll they'll fan them a little bit, but not not too much in my experience. Not not like uh, not like plecos do or anything where you got the male in there mm-hmm. with the, the fins going a million miles an hour. Right, right. So they're just kind of watching, keep other fish away from it. And uh, in terms of in terms of raising the fry, it's it's very tedious. Uh, they they do not like big water changes when when they're little. Trying to trying to do a large water change, you'll kill them all. So you've got to you've got to do very small water changes, and I always do it with water out of the parents' tank. Interesting. Uh, I've, I've found even yeah even even doing small water changes on like a let's say I put all the fry in a ten gallon tank and and even did just twenty percent water change or something. It's it's uh, the, that new water they, they really don't take to it well. I, I end up losing half of them every time if I do it that way. So. Uh, I just make sure that that adult tank is very clean and I just pull the water out of that and they never really seem to have a problem with that then. Mm. And then what, what's going to be your first food for the fry? Uh, freshly hatched brine shrimp. And, uh, and I, I find that they, they take to uh, crushed flake pretty early on as well. That's I'm, I'm terrible about raising brine. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I get lazy about it. I'm, you know, <laughs> so, no, Dave, honestly, I'll, I'll I'm, for- week or so and then I, I get bad i'm i'm so glad that, that you're saying that because i'm i'm right there with you man i am just i i, I really am i'm so bad at, at at raising baby brine and it's just you know I, I go through these spurts where it's like all right man i'm dialed in it's two tablespoons of baby brine to two whatever it is of salt to or whatever the ratios are it's like i've got it dialed down in my head i know exactly what it is and i kick out brine shrimp for like a week or two weeks straight and then i just hit these spurts where I just fall off the wagon, man, and I don't make brine forever. Um, and I actually, I just my my angels finally just spawned, so I, I got them when they were dime sized, and now they're at the point where they're they're mature and they've gone through like I don't know ten different egg laying sessions, and all of them were you know not fertilized. And finally, I had somewhere like seventy five percent of the eggs they they actually fertilized. Um, I had I had little wigglers, you know, and I, I put them in a separate tank, and within two or three days, because I wasn't hatching baby brine shrimp, they 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 passed. Um, I tried giving them crushed. Uh, uh, crushed flake like it was fine as I could get it um, but unfortunately that didn't do it 
but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you and I'm so glad to hear that somebody that has so much experience and is so revered in the hobby still, you know, admits and struggles with the baby brine shrimp as far as, and it's probably, it's probably not a skill thing. It's just, you know, the, I don't, I don't even want to say focus. It's just that, um, desire to go and, and just make those next batches of baby brine. Yeah, that's a very nice way. <laughs> I like taking care of the fish, but I know a lot of people get real into the different foods and they're they're raising food to feed the food that they're feeding to their fish. I, that's not me. I, I, just, I don't know. I can't get into it. If they, uh, yeah, if man, they I'm, I'm take too you. long to take on the prepared foods, yeah, I'm it's, with it's you. not a fish for me. <laughs> No, so that, that, that's great to hear, though. So, I mean, you, you can do the baby brine shrimp, and then they will take to that crush flake very early on, so that's super positive. And, I mean, once they're taking that crush fl- flake, it's it's just kind of cruise control, right? And you're just taking care of the water parameters, and you're just, you know, playing that slow game and, and letting them grow out that, what is it, that that nine months to get an inch size? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a long process, but you, you get them there, and uh, uh, the, the, the biggest thing that I find with all of these teeny tiny little fry like that is we always want to put them in a large tank, but but you got to keep them in something small just so they can find the food. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then the struggle there is that the smaller that tank is, you got to be real careful about how much food you put in there. If you put too much in there uh, with a fish like this, where you can't do big water changes, you, you got to get all that excess food out. So it's it's kind of a it's kind of a weird struggle there. You, you got to you, you got to make sure that they're getting enough food. <laughs> It's it's not that that uh, that they'll eat too much and have problems from that. It's it's that they'll leave too much behind and start fouling the water. Mm-hmm. And, and so let's say so let's go back to kind of stocking. Um, what would you recommend for somebody that really likes this? They want to go species only on this black calvis, and they have the forty gallon tank. So what's going to be your stocking size recommendation for a forty gallon? Well, I, I always tell people if, if if you're wanting to grow them out and breed them, always buy more than you really intend to end up with. Because if you lose some along the way, you really don't want to have to start over with a fish that's going to take four years to hit adult size. Mm. So, uh, if if your if your goal in a forty breeder is maybe you know try to have a, a a male and three females or something, I think that would be that would be pretty good. Uh, I'd probably get like ten fish. Mm, okay, and. Uh, just, just grow those guys out as they get large. Again, it's it's such a difficult fish to get at a large size. You're going to have zero problem getting rid of any extras that you have. Mm-hmm. No, that's, a, yeah, and, that's and there I would also, I'd recommend keeping another male or two uh, in another tank. You know, whether it's like an all male show tank or, or just a separate ten gallon or something. Just because uh, if if you do end up losing your male. Then you're just sitting there with a few females, and it's it's often difficult to find an, another adult. Yeah, no, that's that's very that's very good advice. Yeah, if you put all your eggs in the one basket of one male, and you spend all this time growing them out, and come to find out, like let's say by freak chance he's infertile or whatever, like whatever happens, he he jumps the the aquarium. You know, you spent all of that time growing out this little mini colony for breeding, and now you're down a male, <laughs> like and you have no males. That would be terrible. Yeah, and I find with fish every now and then you get one that's just perfectly content and holding a territory and chasing things away and has zero interest in breeding. Wow, wow, that's <laughs> funny. Now and then you end up with one like that, and yeah, 
he's got to go then. <laughs> yeah. So, so looking at your site on my davesfish.com right now, uh, I'm under the Alto Lamper logo section. You've got the Calvis Congo Black there. Um, if somebody wanted to go and order these guys from you, can they specify male, female, or at the you know inch and a quarter to inch and a half size that you have them listed, are they sexable? Uh, unfortunately, not. The, they take a long time to really get to a point where you can tell what's what. Uh, at, at that size, in my experience at least, it, it doesn't seem like the males grow faster than the females un- until they get past that probably two inch mark. Once once they get about an inch and a half to two inches, then you really start to see that the size uh, the sizes separating, where you can tell hey, if, if these are all from the same spawn. There are some that are twice the size of the others. Those are going to be your males. But, but at this point, they're all still the same size, even when they're from the same spawn. Oh, so so then as they get even older, the sexual dimorphism between the males and females, is it not that apparent? And is it only like a size thing? Like with like with angelfish, it's, you know, there there's a couple of, of physical characteristics of markers to tell a male versus a female. Um, still, it's, it, it's in my experience, it, it is a bit tricky to do. Is that kind of the same thing then with these Altolamprologus? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's it's size. That's about it. Oh, wow. Uh, even, even in terms of venting them, I, I find I find that they're tough to vent even even when the adults come in. Their eggs are so tiny. It's always easier to vent a fish like a frontosa or a trophius that, that has a, a large egg. Because uh, then, by, by nature, they have a larger opening for that egg to come out of. Mm-hmm. So these, these guys that have real tiny eggs, they just, the vents are small. So it's real hard to see what you're what you're looking at. Um, um, when, when they are larger flipping them over, I find that the males generally are much, much darker along the belly than the females are. Uh, so looking at them sideways through the glass, it, it's harder to see that. But, but when you take them out and flip them over, you, you can, you can see it pretty well. Mm-hmm. So then even if somebody didn't want to, you know, establish a breeding colony necessarily, necessarily, and have, you know, a, a breeding stock of this fish, if they just wanted to enjoy the fish it might actually be a better idea for them to get that larger number of fish initially, grow them out, and that way they can then balance out their colony later on down the line, you know, in a year or a year and a half when they see, you know, okay, now I've got, now I see that I have three males and, you know, six females. Now I can kind of wean down to the size that I want as opposed to just trying to thread the needle with their initial order. Sure, yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, any extras that you do have, they're, they're going to be very, very easy to get rid of. It's a, it's a fish that's always in high demand, particularly as an adult. Mm, interesting. Now, just to kind of talk this through, in general, or at least in my experience, would you would you say that frontosas are also a slow-growing fish? Uh, initially, they grow pretty fast. I, mm. I find in that first year, they'll get like you know five or six inches, but uh, but then they slow down like a inch or two a year after that mm-hmm. and then and then as far as trophies i guess because what i'm trying to understand here is um you know having only kept frontosis and i actually got my frontosa colony years ago um, when i was in the hobby from somebody else who had grown some out uh is that uh, well the theory is are lake tanganyikan cichlids are they slower growing compared to the other two major rift lakes uh, no i don't think so i, I okay. think uh, with tanganyika it's it's an it's an older lake so it tends to be far more diverse in, in the species that we have from there. Uh, things like, like you know, the, the three that we're talking about here, the, the Calvis, the Frontosa, and, and Trophius, they're so radically different from each other. Uh, whereas if, if we were in Malawi and just picked three random fish, 
they're they're going to be much much closer uh much more closely related to each other than than the three tanganegans we're talking about and then we could even throw in the shell shell dwellers to really diversify yeah, although, although the shell dwellers and the calvus are not too far apart, they're they're both going to be lamprologians. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, some some species will grow real fast. Trophius grow like weeds, uh, but but then of course the the calvus are at the total opposite end. It's probably the slowest growing fish I've ever I've ever brought up. Interesting. Yeah, for for me that just makes me want to understand, like from an evolutionary perspective within the same lake, you know, what is happening with these cichlids where some you know grow and develop you know, much more slowly than something like, like the Altolamprologus growing so much more slowly than a Trophius, you know, like just kind of understanding why that is. Yeah. I, I don't know what kind of benefit that would serve. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, like yeah, the, seriously. The, the faster you get adult size, the better for the species. Yeah. And, and especially with yeah. these calvus, like you're not, you're, you're not saying that they're this ultra aggressive fish. They're not, you know, they're not going out crushing every other fish out there. Like they're just going after the malt, the, the crustaceans, the shrimp and, and whatnot. Like, I don't know. It, it just seems kind of weird, right? Like from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, I guess the fact that they can wedge themselves in those rocks and, and have those good hiding places. Um, maybe that's why, maybe that's why they don't grow fast. Yeah. So they can live longer in those tighter spots. Yeah, that could be too. Hmm. There's a, uh, there's a great National Geographic video uh, of an otter chasing a compressiceps, which which is the calvus's closest relative, uh, and and this this compressiceps is outmaneuvering this otter and dives into a chunk of wood and wedges in there, and you see this otter just ripping apart this wood trying to get in there to get at this guy, hmm. and he's holding right in it. It, it, it was. If, if I remember right, I think the otter does eventually get him. <laughs> oh, jeez! But he certainly made him work for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and and again, you see that it's like how are people? Because <laughs> that, that otter is definitely better built to uh, get the job done than, than the human body. Is. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, they're they're definitely uh, they're definitely good at, at weaving in and out of things and squeezing into tight spots. They're they're very laterally compressed, so they can. Uh, even even though they're they're long and bodies, they're very very flat. Yeah, I, yeah, I would well, say flatter than a, than a discus. Yeah, I mean, well, I would definitely say thank you very much for for walking me through this this species, kind of a, a one on one on the on the black calvus. Um, and I would really recommend. I'll, I'll actually have links in the show notes to um, your this the particular listing for this fish, so people can see the image of it. Uh, but it's a super super cool fish. It's got a very unique angular head, um, and then it's um, it's it's dorsal fin. You know, the, the the top fin on the body. It almost it's very reminiscent of like an Elvis Presley kind of hairdo going down the back. Like it's yeah. such it's such a cool <laughs> looking fish. I mean, and that's and, and and you know it's probably some of the reasons why. Like, like, you know, you got into it is it's such a unique, uniquely shaped fish. It's it's beautiful in terms of its coloration and its patterning. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just something where instantly you look at it and you're like, man, I really want to know a little bit more about this fish. And so, you know, Dave, thank you very much for, for walking us through that. Now, no I, would, I, I would want to know. Like talking fish. Yeah, <laughs> we are fish nerds. How do you, especially you know. when we start getting into Lake Malawi, how do you keep these species, these varieties, uh, the you know, just based on collection points? Like, how do you keep them straight in your head if you do it all, or are you constantly going to like you know, you're an encyclopedia to to identify like which fish are which? 
Well, one one big benefit that I have that that keeps me on top of it is that I'm I do it for a living, so <laughs> I'm doing it every single day. It's always fresh on my mind. But uh, there there are some fantastic books by uh, Odd Koenig, uh, Lake Malawi, uh, Lake Malawi cichlids in their natural habitat. He does for both Malawi and Tanganyika, and bar none, the, the cichlid bibles for for Malawi and, and Tanganyika. There is no better book for either lake. And, and he updates them frequently. I think, uh, yeah, Tanganyika. I think I think fourth edition just came out, and and Malawi's on the fifth edition, I believe. Uh, I apologize, I don't have them in front of me. No, no worries. I've um, I was actually able to win a a copy of that at a, at a um, one of our auctions. I think we had a couple extra copies of Lake Malawi, so it's probably not his newest edition out there, but it's a it's a great book. Um, and we actually had him out to speak at the club maybe six months ago now, and it was just a fantastic talk. And you know the experience that Odd Connings has is is fantastic. Uh, I mean, it's it's like incredible. Like it's incredible the amount of experience that that man has um, in the in the Riff Lakes. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you, you click on any one of these random pictures of or links for uh, Alanacaras, um, you know, with depending on which species you're looking at, you know, within each species, it seems like there's a couple different varieties and, you know, they're all gorgeous, but they look so similar. It's like, man, how do you even, how do you even start diving in? And then you get into the haplochromines and it just, yeah, it, it, it just seems like it's you're going to spend a lot of time and you're going to need to put in a lot of reps of looking at these fish and referencing and, and seeing the different visual characteristics to know, okay, yeah, that's a, that's a, um, ivory head bloto versus a fireline bloto. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, and there, there are definitely gray areas. Sometimes you get fish in and particularly when, when you're bringing wild fish in, uh, they'll, they'll often, you'll get, uh, what, what we in the trade like to call contaminant species. Uh, where you, you order one thing and, and you get mostly that, but then there's a couple other things in there that you know God only knows what they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, with stuff like that, Odd, Odd is always great about that too. He's 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 a he's a very nice guy who answers his emails all the time. So uh, I'll sometimes try to send him an email in in a very yes or no fashion so that he doesn't have to take too much time because I'm sure he gets a lot of that. And uh, and I'm always amazed he'll he'll write a book back to me. <laughs> <laughs> nice, but yeah, he's he's very good. Sometimes he sometimes he'll say, you know, honestly, I have no idea. I've never seen that one before. Oh wow! Uh, and other times, uh, he he knows immediately what it is, and and I would say that's more more often than not that's what happens. Wow. Uh, do you do he's, you find- he's out there seeing them in the wild, whereas you know, for for me, for those part, I'm just seeing. Uh, I'm seeing full color adult fish. By the time they get to me, they're already full color. I didn't see that kind of intermediate phase, which is generally how they come in when you get wild ones. Mm. So I was going to ask, like, do you have to then wait? Like if you're bringing in some, like when you do get wild fish, do you have to wait a day or so for them to color up and kind of de-stress, if you will, before you can really say, oh yeah, that's actually what that's supposed to be? Sometimes a lot longer. <laughs> I have some fish right now that, that I got about a year ago. <laughs> uh they they came in as Capatochromus, uh, what were they? Uh, Diplostigma, Capatochromus Diplostigma, and Diplostigma literally means two dot, and these guys have three spots along the flank, so they're huh. <laughs> they're most certainly not Diplostigma, but I'm I've been I've been growing them out because they they did come in kind of small for a wild fish. Uh, I've been growing those guys out, and and now that they're coloring up, I'm actually seeing. It, it looks like it's actually two different species 
species in there. So I need to I need to work on separating the two species and uh, see see how many I've got of each and, and get some decent photos and I'll I'll shoot those over to Odd again at some point too to see if if he can help out with that. Nice. Uh, a, a lot of it too. You get you got to have a location. You know, knowing where the fish came from makes a tremendous difference. Fortunately, all I have on those guys is Tanzania, which <laughs> is, is quite a long coast. It, it would it would help if I had a, a tighter tighter locale than that. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So, so let's take a step back and talk about Dave's fish. Um, what you know? How did how did Dave's fish come to be? Uh, well, I uh, I went to college at Texas State, which is in San Marcos, and uh, just about 15 miles south of there it was New Braunfels and there was a, a big mail order company there called RP's Rare Aquarium Fish and they were they were well known throughout the 90s they did a lot of ads in, in uh, Tropical Fish Hobbyist Magazine and things like that and I think one of the things that kind of hurt them was was uh, when the internet really kind of popped up uh, I think in the early days they were they were a big enough business that they could afford to advertise in TFH and nobody else could. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they were kind of the go-to place for cichlids. And, uh, and once the internet kind of happened and took off, they weren't anymore. Anybody could get on there and sell fish. And, uh, uh I started working for them. It was a great place, but, uh, but I could definitely tell they had, they had lost interest. I mean, by, by the time I started working there, they didn't, they never went back and even looked at fish. They, they'd order stuff and never go look at it. So, um, eventually eventually i i got kind of bored and and moved on because they they had uh they had kind of just stopped they, they had multiple businesses and they were focusing on the other businesses i'd ask them hey when are we getting more fish and so oh, two weeks two weeks later hey when are we getting more fish oh, about two weeks I, I got i got bored and i ended up quitting and went and worked at another fish store for a little while and they called me up and said hey would you want to buy it I said well yeah but I don't think I can afford it. They said, well, we'll, we'll make it affordable. <laughs> we need to get rid of it. So, uh, and that's kind of how my, my shop came about. I, I bought everything from them. We moved it down to San Antonio and, uh, and actually while right, right before we got on this call, uh, I was in the backyard. We, we just recently moved uh, to a new house. And the, the purpose for doing that was we have a large uh, building behind the house. So I'm moving, I'm moving everything out of my existing shop into this place. So I've been back there, uh, me and me and my dad, my, my dad is a tremendous, a tremendous helper to me with all of this stuff. So, uh, we've been back, back there just fixing up the building and getting, getting our first rack of tanks set up. I got all the air hooked up for the first rack, uh, about five minutes before I called you. <laughs> oh, awesome. Nice. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I, and I've only, so I've moved, soon. yeah, I mean, I've moved one small rack right and i've got a, a relatively small fish room at you know 10 by 12 with 40 some odd tanks and i know just how much work it is just to move a rack into a fish room get it set back up set up a new rack i couldn't imagine at something at your scale just how much work that actually is and you know to, to like you're saying how indebted and how grateful you are to your dad at, you know to have a helper to help out with that yeah, well, I want to make sure I mention that because I know I said earlier something about him getting angry when <laughs> when I had too many tanks in the bedroom. He, he's extremely supportive and it has helped me a ton grow my business. And uh, he's, he's retired now and he comes over here 
almost almost every day now to, to help me move everything and get all that set up. But uh, I would say he probably comes over once or twice a week anyway, even before moving, just to just to help out. He he tends to focus on things that that I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always want to make sure the fish tanks look good and and that I can see through the glass. And he comes in and looks around and goes, "Oh my God, your floor is filthy." <laughs> no, I, I never looked down. <laughs> No, that's that's awesome to have a uh, to have a have somebody that that can support and help like that. Um, so so paint a picture of what's the what's the scale of the operation right now. You know, once I, I, again you're in transit right now, but when you're fully up up and running in this new building, um, how many fish tanks is it going to be? Because looking at your aquarium, your fish list right now, it's massive. Like it takes it takes my finger numerous moves on the wheel to scroll down all of the fish that you carry. Like it is it is impressive. Yeah, and that's uh, that's all, all here. Uh, well, at, at the old shop, at least. So, I would say, to, to be honest, I really I don't know. I need to go through and count. That is <laughs> awesome. I would I would guess it's somewhere <laughs> it's somewhere between six and seven hundred tanks. Wow, somewhere around there. Wow, and how? What's the average the, size? The rack that we got set up today. Well, the, the, the this first rack that we moved, uh, it's it's one hundred and twenty eight ten gallon tanks. Wow. Uh, so those those are my smallest tanks, but um, I would say I would say the tanks that I have the most of because you'll notice on my site that the vast majority of what I have is juvenile stock. Uh, it, it tends to it, it ships better and it ships a lot cheaper, so mm-hmm. uh, I, I tend to sell a lot more of them at that size. So the I would say probably about half of my tanks are twenties twenty gallons. I have a lot of twenty gallons. Then I've got uh, got a bunch of uh, hundred gallons and fifty fives for the uh for the larger species or l- larger fish wow that is incredible so what but, did, uh, so when you bought the business um ha- has it stayed the same size as far as the number of tanks this i mean obviously if species offered should increase because the previous owners weren't actually doing any ordering but you know if 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 when you bought it they were fully stocked like how much have you grown the business since you took it over well, when, when I bought it, I think we had roughly 400 tanks, and um, I, it, it was it was a nightmare moving all that. It was about 400 tanks. I was able to condense all the fish that they had left into probably 40 of those tanks. <laughs> they really did not have much left, so uh, it, it was it was still a pain in the butt. But uh, that's that's kind of the challenge now is moving the tanks isn't all that difficult except that they've all got fish in them (laughs) we've got to get got to condense everything so we can move a rack at a time just get a get a whole row over here and set up and then start transitioning the fish over so we can break down the next rack uh, i have through the end of august to get everything out and i'm starting to get a little nervous that (laughs) that that might not happen It's, it's gonna have to happen one way or another Wow, man! Hey, if I was in the People area, a lot of late nights. Hey, I would say if I was in the area, man. If I if I lived down the road from you, dude, I would I'd throw in a hand and help out. That sounds that just sounds like a fun thing to be a part of. Shit, it. I mean, not to like not to say that it's not going to be a lot of work, but to be like, yeah, man, I helped I helped you know a day I helped Dave out and moved you know X number of of tanks from you know this location to the next location and helped him set up, and I was a part of this massive you know f- like five six hundred tank um adventure like that just seems cool yeah it's it's um it's fun at first (laughs) (laughs) 
maybe, maybe if you did just pitch in for a day or two, it might be fun. Oh, that, yeah, that's what I'm saying, just one day. <laughs> yeah, not, day, definitely not beyond a day. By day 30 or 40, it's, it's not that fun anymore. <laughs> you need to you need to rotate in like the uh, yeah I, I do I do enjoy getting everything set up. It, it, there, there's so many things though when when we pull the tanks off the racks and you look you look at the rack that's sitting there and you go oh my lord I had no idea there was so much uh, uh, wet wood and, you know a lot of rot in the back that you can't see when the tanks are in place. So oh man, there's, there's lots of that going on too. Or pull it down and realize. Uh, Wow, got to rebuild that rack, or, or at least you know replace a few or something. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a it's a process getting everything over. Or so I want to give everything a fresh coat of paint when we move it too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's taken a while. So if I were to, I ask probably you, need to get over some of that. To make it happen. Yeah. So if I were to ask you, what does the future look like for Dave'sFish.com? I, I guess the the immediate answer would be just to get this new building up and running. Um, you know, get all the the fish moved over and just kind of take a breather. Uh, but beyond that, you know, what what else do you have in mind for your business? Well, one thing is with with the property that we have now, there's there's a lot of room for growth. I don't know that I necessarily need it or or want it. <laughs> uh, at, at a certain point, it becomes too much, and, and this is still. I mean, it's it's my job, but it's still a hobby too. I still very much enjoy it, and I have a. I have the feeling that I, I could probably do just about anything else and make more money, but uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I end up spending all that money on fish anyway. Yeah, so this works yeah. out. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, there's there's lots of uh, there, there's lots of room for growth on the property here. Uh, the the building that I'm in is or that, that I have here already. It's smaller than the than the shop I'm moving out of, but I don't need to worry about leaving four foot wide aisles for customers walking through because we really don't do that anymore mm. uh, so some some of these aisles are just just barely wide enough for me to get through uh, <laughs> to squeeze all this stuff in there i've got i've got one section where just just to make it fit uh I, i'm pretty sure i'm gonna have about two feet to, to squeeze through there mm-hmm do you ever see yourself doing any type of like a, uh, you know, larger greenhouse expansion with, uh, you know, kind of that, that hemispherical covered, um, type, type greenhouses and maybe, you know, cement coffers, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I would like that. I think, uh, my wife might not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it is at our house <laughs> and, and she's, she's more concerned with making sure everything looks good. Okay. So, uh, yeah. I do. I do want to uh, definitely expand. I, I want to do a lot more outdoor stuff, but I, I have to make sure it still looks attractive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to think in my head, uh, like I, I would have to clear out so many trees if I ever wanted to try to do that. Because up, up here in the Pacific Northwest, like I've just got these hundred foot tall fir trees and and, and uh, yeah. cedar trees everywhere. And then I think even if I had a clear spot, I think you would inherently have to heat that building um, in the winter time. So I think. You know, once you start factoring in the cost of heat, you know, you would just really lose and, and not that it would be anything to even try to make like a ton of money on, but you would be so behind the eight ball as far as just the initial operating cost compared to somebody in Florida or in Texas that in the wintertime they don't have to combat and have that massive heating bill like I would up here, like having having massive raised cement ponds um just seems like like the the more fish farm tours that i go on the more fish farm tour videos that i see uh, it just looks like such a blast to have those yeah uh, and i i definitely want to do more outdoor stuff uh, i don't know i'll probably do i'll probably do something more like those those ibc totes 
just just to grow some things out and uh and i'll have to put up a little fence or something so my wife doesn't see it from the house i was gonna say man <laughs> ibc totes are not attractive looking <laughs> yeah, yeah they're ugly <laughs> but they're they're great for raising fish sure. I, I did, I did a, a couple of them at the old house just for fun in the backyard uh yeah, I've, they, uh, they're great outdoors. It, the, the depth, the depth of them helps the, the the water stay a little cooler. I think I think that's where a lot of people have issues doing the fish outside is is the heat. Uh, for the most part, it, it, it's been my experience that the fish can handle the heat as long as they have the oxygen. Mm. So I think I think that warmer water, you know, the, the warmer water holds less oxygen. Mm-hmm. So as long as you've got plenty of, of turnover, lots of uh, lots of aeration in there, they they do just fine. I, I I did fish in the backyard where I had the water probably probably into the lower nineties even, and I mean they were they were growing like weeds, eating like crazy, popping out babies left and right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was great. Yeah, but, uh, but lots and lots of aeration. Yeah, the, the, I've got two outdoor ponds set up right now, and they're, you know, the, the biggest one is the 300-gallon. It's those the, the Rubbermaid troughs. Um, so I've got a 300-gallon one, I've, and then I have a second one that's a 100-gallon, and then three other ones that are not set up right now. So the 300-gallon has a, a native North American killifish in it. Um, I know for sure the male survived the overwinter, um, even though that pond at one point did have a very thick layer of ice, but where I had the aeration going, it managed to keep that um, that air hole because we had we had a pretty cold winter this year with with a decent amount of snowfall, which we only get like one snowfall a year and then it melts off and turns into ice. Um, but uh, yeah, so the so I know the male survived. I need to stick my GoPro down in there and actually look for proof of life and may, hopefully some females survived and they spawned in the springtime. And then the other one that I just set up a few months ago actually has some of the uh, what are they golden or orange uh, rice fish I forget the 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 actual particular color variation they call it Uh, but those did overwinter in Washington those actually came from from Cory and so those will make it over the winter but then it's you know aside from getting like the platinum rice fish or another type of you know proven cold water fish like that my options are very much limited to having a like what time what kind of species can I keep that's year-round um, we've got a really cool Olympic mud minnow, but you're not actually allowed to keep that. It's a, it's a protected native fish. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I need to do a little bit more research to see, you know, legally what fish can I keep that would do well in an above ground, you know, 100 gallon pond that would potentially get iced over, but still have good aeration uh, to keep it from being a completely solid block of ice. And, and I will say freaking pond snails, man, those guys overwinter like a champ, man, those things, pond snails are bulletproof. Yeah, that's that's why they're so highly invasive in most places. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, can, they can take it all. All right. Yeah, I think I think we have uh, our our biggest struggle here is the opposite with with the heat. Uh, a lot of the Tanganyikans, you know, I talked about the Calvis earlier. There's no way you could do Calvis outdoors. They just they they can't handle those temperature swings, and uh, and w- when it gets that warm, they just they they die. Uh, a lot a lot of the Lamprolobians don't do well. In, in outdoor situations uh, with the temperature swings with, with, uh, with Malawi and Tanganyika, their, their water temperature in, in, in nature, they stay, they stay the same pretty much year round. Uh, it doesn't really change more than a few degrees. Because well, on that point, it, Tanganyika is a deeper lake than the other two, right? Oh uh, yes. Yeah. Tanganyika is, I, I believe the second deepest lake in the world. I think, I think only to, to Lake Baikal in uh, in Russia, 
but um it's yeah it, it, malawi malawi is also very deep so they they tend to hold the temperature well but they're also semi-equatorial so they uh they don't have much in the way of seasons hmm. kind of always summer <laughs> hmm, interesting well i guess to go back to the black calvis and what's kind of that ideal temperature for that fish uh, i would i would say i would say kind of like like mid to upper 70s i think i think a lot of people try to keep their their uh, fish too warm because most of the information that that you see in a like a intro book to keeping fish they're, they're talking about amazonian fish you mm-hmm. know the tetras and things and uh and yeah they they want it warmer but but these guys really don't. Uh, I always, I always tell people don't, don't use a heater unless you absolutely have to. Mm. With with any heater, that thermostat will eventually go out. It's it's not it's not a question of if but when. Uh, when when it goes out at our house, you come home and it's it's uncomfortable. You you pop in a new one and then you're okay again. Uh, when it goes out on your heater and your fish tank, you cook all your fish. Yeah. So there's you know there, there's no fixing that. If you have to have heaters, if you're doing it in a cold basement or something, uh, I always recommend alternating on on a timer so that you have one heater that, that you know have two two heaters in your tank. One kicks on for an hour, flips over to the other one, where the other one kicks on for another hour. That way, if one of them ever does get stuck on, it kicks off every hour, and it's going to be warm enough that you know that next one's not going to kick on. Are you then are you then under the um, the the school of thought where you should then undersize your heaters as well? Depending on how many you run, uh, the issue with under undersizing the heaters is then they're just staying on a lot, uh, and and then you're you're killing your electric bill. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So then in in in, in this kind of if they're just staying they're picking off. Yeah. And your thoughts on heaters, uh, you know, most people not necessarily needing them is, is going to be based on the fact that we keep our homes fairly comfortable in terms of, you know, 70s, upper 70s or mid 70s range, right? Yeah, I find with most of the Malawi and Tanganyikans, any, anywhere in the 70s, they're, they're happy. Hmm. Good stuff. They, they, don't, they don't need to be up in the 80s. They, they, don't, they don't like going down in the 60s either. But, uh, but if, you, if you've got them anywhere in the 70s, they're going to be okay. Uh, and in fact, uh, with with uh, I mentioned doing ponds in the backyard, I, I always before winter comes, I try to catch out as many fish as I can. But there's always some that that you know kind of stay behind and you can't see them real well. So when it when it drops into the 40s for the first time, I always just go out there with a net and just kind of swish swish it around, and you'll see these fish kind of just float out of all the little cracks and they look dead. You scoop them out, put them in a bucket, and bring them inside. And once they get back up to temperature, they swim around like nothing ever happened. It's like they <laughs> nice. just kind of slow down as yeah. long as them get to freezing. Yeah, it's, it's an easy way to catch all the stragglers. <laughs> no, that's that's good advice. All right, Dave. Well, thank you very much for you know really breaking down who you are, talking about your experiences in the hobby, um, giving us that awesome 
uh, Cichlid 101 on the on the Alto Lamprologus Calvus, uh, the uh, you know the black Calvus fish. That was really great to learn more about that fish, and I would highly encourage the listeners to to just take a look. And I'm not saying you have to go out and buy this guy, but he's pretty cool looking. And I actually want to do uh, I need to Google image some of the the biotope pictures. You know where this guy comes from in the wild, what those rocks look like, and just to get an appreciation for when people were catching them in the wild, or if they do catch them in the wild, just you know how difficult of a task that may have been. Um, and, you know, again, getting more appreciation for that particular fish and then really helping us understand more about your operation with Dave's fish. And um, again, looking at your your list of available fish that you have, um, it's huge. Like there are so many fish on here. And what I really like is that with the exception of like one, um, you've got you've got full color images for all of these fish, because the, the worst thing is when you go to a site or you're on Aquabid and there's no image for the fish that just that just drives me up a wall. So thank you very much, Dave, for actually having images associated with your listings. Well, it definitely helps to sell them. <laughs> you would, <laughs> when you can show somebody what they look like. Yeah, you would you would think so, man. But sometimes it's just like, nope, you're, this is what it is, and you get a picture of our logo. Like, come on, you're killing okay. me. So, so Dave, thank you very much for taking time out of your out of your incredibly busy day. Um, you're probably gonna go back to to setting up your new fish room and moving tanks over. Um, so, I, I definitely enjoyed this conversation, and so glad that uh, we were able to connect. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.